Hello and welcome. This is the Book of Acts by Word Online. So it's great to have you with us for Series 4, Episode 2, as we continue in the exciting journey that Luke uh, portrays for us as the gospel is spreading further and further away from where it starts in Jerusalem, which is where the story starts in Acts 1 and Acts 2 and the subsequent chapters. And it's been spreading ever since then. And each series represents a step on the journey. We started in Jerusalem in series one, then in series two, the Jewish and Samaritan areas nearby, Judea and Samaria. Then in series three, the gospel begins to get to the Gentiles. And we ended up in the city uh, of Antioch. And now in series four, we see uh, that Paul and Barnabas become the first apostolic team to set out formally to plant churches in places where the gospel is unknown. So this is an interesting methodology which becomes a normal part of the New Testament pattern all the way through from now onwards and gives us some ideas about fresh church planting in the modern age as we're seeking to reach more and more people for Christ. So there are lots of things that we can learn. So we noticed at the beginning that from the church in Antioch, the Holy Spirit spoke, Paul and Barnabas were commissioned, they sent off, and in the last episode, which was the beginning of this series, they were in the island of Cyprus. And they had a good impact there amongst the Jewish congregation with the Roman ruler, the proconsul Sergius Paulus, and now they are traveling from the island of Cyprus north and they're going into an area called Asia or Asia Minor with several provinces in the Roman Empire which is in the area of modern-day Turkey. As far as we know there was no Christian witness in this area at all. It was a brand new mission and Paul and Barnabas are leading the way. So we're going to find out what happens when they uh, set foot in what we would call Turkey uh, and the adventures they have and the challenges they face. So we are <coughs> in uh, Acts 13, uh, verses uh, 13 to 15 tells us how this journey starts. From Paphos, that's in Cyprus, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga in Pamphylia, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From Perga, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a word of exhortation for the people, please speak. So here we are. They've landed and they've gone inland. They traveled inland to this city, also called Antioch. The first city of Antioch we encounter in Acts 11 is Syrian Antioch, Antioch in Syria. This is another Antioch in the province of Pisidia, hence Pisidian Antioch, a different city. We're 150 kilometers inland 
in a hilly and mountainous area of what we would now call Turkey. We're in a regional capital and we know there was a Jewish community there and Paul and Barnabas always headed for the Jewish community first. So whenever you go to a new place, you find the best point of contact in order to begin preaching the gospel. And for them, it was their Jewish culture and heritage. So this very quickly leads them to come to the synagogue. The synagogue for the Jewish people, especially in these lands outside their own land, was a place of social gathering, a place of community, a place of family, a place of helping the poor, a place of worship on the Sabbath day, the Saturday of the week, where they would gather and worship. And they always welcomed visitors. The Jews loved to be visited by other Jewish people coming into their community who were traveling. So when Paul and Barnabas appeared, who are both Jews, they were welcomed warmly into the synagogue. And as it says here, there were readings from the law and the prophets. It was traditional in the synagogue in many parts of uh, the Roman Empire at this time for there to be two readings in the service. One from the first five books of the Old Testament called here the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, a reading from there and then a reading from the prophetic books of the Old Testament or perhaps the Psalms or Proverbs. So the pattern was to have two readings, prayers and a talk or an address or a message. And one of the uh, traditions that existed, as far as we know, in some of these synagogues was for the synagogue ruler to allow a visitor who was suitably qualified to give the message. And they identified Paul as very well trained in Judaism. He was a Pharisee by background. He had been trained in one of the religious schools that was famous in Jerusalem under a rabbi called Gamaliel. We see this mentioned several times in the book of Acts. So just talking to Paul casually, you realize he's well qualified. So they said, why don't you give the message this morning? Now, that's exactly what Paul wanted. And so what we have now in the next passage is Paul's approach to this Jewish community who don't know much, if anything, about Jesus Christ. But they are very familiar with the Old Testament. And so he goes through the story of the Old Testament before explaining about Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to see as we read on. And we're going to read from verses 16 to 25. And we're going to find what Paul says to this congregation in Pisidian Antioch. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. The God of the people of Israel chose our ancestors. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. For about 40 years, he endured their conduct in the wilderness. And he overthrew seven nations in Canaan, giving their land to his people as their inheritance. And all this took about 450 years. After this, 
God gave them judges till the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Saviour Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, Who do you suppose that I am? I'm not the one you're looking for. But there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, Paul's strategy here is to draw his listeners into God's story by starting at their starting point. They're Jews. They value the Old Testament. So he reaffirms the foundations of the fact that God called the Jews in ancient times. He called Abraham. He led them to come out of Egypt. He refers to the 40 years in the wilderness. He refers to getting into the promised land. He refers to the huge timescale of all this that happened. He refers to the judges who were the first rulers of the settled people of Israel in the promised land. And he refers to the first king whom the prophet Samuel appointed um, as a result of the people's pressure. And his name was Saul and he was very unsatisfactory and he was removed after 40 years. And then he comes to the punchline of this section. They had the human king Saul, chosen by the people because of his capacities and skills. And then we have the divinely chosen king, David, a shepherd boy, the last in the line of his family, an unlikely candidate whom Samuel picks out and anoints. And Paul emphasizes here that uh, the kingship of David is very, very important. And this is a key part of his argument because the Jews listening knew perfectly well that God made a promise to David, which they would be familiar with. Paul may have spoken about it, but he, it isn't quoted directly by Luke. But in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16, God made an incredible promise to David and it's directly relevant to the gospel. He said, your house, that's your dynasty, and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. In other words, David's kingship isn't a one-generation wonder or a temporary factor in Israel. There's going to be in the long term a greater king coming out of David's bloodline and his dynasty and his heritage who will be a divinely appointed ruler to bring in the kingdom of God. So all the Jews believed this. There was no king in Israel now. There was no Davidic king. The Romans were ruling. Any kings they appointed were puppet kings, temporary kings. The Herod dynasty were nothing to do with David's family. They knew that one day there was going to be a ruler come. And, uh, and they, knew, they called that person the son of David. 
Now, the punchline of Paul's argument is that the son of David's come. And his name is Jesus. This is very clear in the argument. Verse 23, from this man's descendant, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus as he promised. Now, this is a very powerful argument amongst the Jewish people. Because in the prophets, there is a promise of a great king coming from David. For example, in Isaiah 9, verse 7, of the greatness of his government and peace, there'll be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. This is a reference to a child who's born, a son who is given in verse 6. So that's a promise they knew about. For example, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will come from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. Jesse was the father of David. This is David's line we're talking about. And a branch will come. And the concept of a branch is used in the Old Testament prophets to describe the Messiah coming, a branch who comes out of the Davidic family, out of the tree of David. So Paul is alluding to all these prophecies that are in the minds of many of his listeners and saying, actually, the son of David has come. And if you know the Gospels, you'll know that Jesus was often called the son of David. Can this be? the son of David. Hosanna to the son of David. This is a powerful claim that he is the Messiah. Then Paul goes on to mention John the Baptist. They probably have heard of John the Baptist who preached before Jesus but said he was not the one they should look out for. He was pointing in the direction of Jesus. Now can you see what Paul's doing here? He's targeting his audience explaining to these Jewish people the connection between their faith and the coming of Jesus and saying there's a direct connection. He then goes on in the next passage, verses 26 to 43, to really explain the gospel, having introduced Jesus and connected him to Jewish history and say you should listen to Jesus because he's the one predicted in the Old Testament. It's all part of your story. He then explains about Jesus in a way that helps them to understand the gospel. So we're going to read verses 26 to 43. Fellow children of Abraham and you God-fearing Gentiles, it is to us that this message of salvation has been sent. For the people of Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize Jesus, yet in condemning him they fulfilled the words of the prophets that are read every Sabbath, Though they found no proper ground for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. 
What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. As God said, I will give you the sure and holy blessings promised to David. So it is also stated elsewhere, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Now when, God had served, now when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried in his ancestors. He was buried with his ancestors and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead will not see decay. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you are not able to obtain from the law of Moses. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wander and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days that, would, that you would never believe even if someone told you. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. So here is Paul's energetic communication with a Jewish audience about Jesus. He tells the story of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is so central. And he points out that Old Testament prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus. When he quotes from Psalm 2 in verse 33, You are my son, today I have become your father. Everybody knows that Psalm 2 was recognized by the Jews as a psalm about the Messiah. They knew that it was pointing forward to the Messiah. When he quoted from Isaiah 55, I will give you the holy and sure blessings promised to David. They knew this was about the covenants that God had made, which pointed to Jesus. When he quoted from Psalm 16, I will not let your holy one see decay. They knew that this psalm was David talking about the afterlife for himself, but also potentially predicting a resurrection from the dead and therefore potentially predicting that Jesus would rise from the dead. And that's the meaning that Peter finds in that passage when he quotes it uh, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So Paul is using prophecy in a way that only Jews can understand uh, in those days to point to say these prophecies are pointing to Jesus and something actually happened in Israel. Jesus died and he rose again from the dead. People have actually seen him risen from the dead and those people are now the witnesses who are traveling around. And of course, Paul was one of those. He saw Jesus on the Damascus road, of course, in a unique experience. And probably Barnabas was one of those who also joined the apostolic group in this period, having had a resurrection appearance from Jesus in the 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. 
So Paul is bringing the message very, very firmly to them and explaining the gospel, particularly explaining that Jesus forgives sin in a unique way through his death on the cross that is, brings about a fundamental change within us which couldn't happen through the law of Moses, the law that they were obeying, all the regulations that they followed never really made the transformation of the individual in the same way that the cross and the resurrection do. So this is a very specific Jewish-orientated message of Paul. And it was like a bomb, a bombshell landing in the synagogue. They just never heard anything like it before. Here they were in a remote Roman uh, province hundreds and hundreds of kilometers away from the homeland, a small Jewish community, and then this firebrand of a Jewish rabbi comes in and tells them about Jesus. Uh, it was astonishing. It really made them think, and they were trying to work out whether they thought he was mad or whether this was the best news they'd ever heard, whether he'd got his interpretation of the Old Testament right, they were really trying to work it out. And so at the end of this passage, we see that they ask him to come again the following week. And some of them wanted to ask Paul lots of questions. And so they followed Paul around uh, to ask some more questions. Now, our story ends a week later. So that was on the Sabbath day. One sermon, one big impact, and a very confused congregation, not quite sure what to make of this message. They needed a bit of time to think about it. Now, the final part of this passage is exactly seven days later, and the situation has developed enormously in seven days. Let's just read this final section, verses 44 to 52. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. They began to contradict what Paul was saying and heaped abuse upon him. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly. We had to speak the word of God to you first. But since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I've made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread throughout the whole region, but the Jewish leaders incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust off their feet as a warning to them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, what a difference a week makes. Paul 
One Sabbath is speaking to a small congregation of Jews in a synagogue and hardly anybody else knows he's in town. And a week later, the whole city, people, we're talking about probably thousands of people are gathering. So what's happened in that week? We don't know exactly what's happened, but word got out. Some of the people in the synagogue the week before weren't Jews. They were actually local Gentiles who were interested in the Jewish God and they went to tell their friends. And during that week, Paul and Barnabas were probably out and about in town in the marketplace talking to people. There may have been some miracles performed by Paul because very often that's what happened in the places he went. And people got talking about this strange Jewish preacher who'd arrived all of a sudden and a huge amount of curiosity was stirred up during that seven-day period. And we know the Holy Spirit must have been at work in that curiosity. Because the next time that Paul came to the synagogue, there were so many people gathered outside it that he must have spoken in public. Because literally thousands of people have gathered in that part of town around where the synagogue was to hear this man as he came to speak and the Jews of course as it says here became hostile and they thought no we don't want this guy he's stirring up trouble his message is confusing it's getting all the Gentiles involved in our religion and so they started speaking against him but Paul said well I'm turning to the Gentiles if you don't receive the message I offer it to them and many of them believed on that second Sabbath in Pisidian Antioch. What an extraordinary story. How amazing it is that Paul made such an impact in such a short period of time. But he could see trouble brewing because there was opposition rising. And he feared that he might be put in prison or attacked physically. And so after a, peri a short period of time, Paul realized the best thing to do was to get out of the city and go on to the next place. But by the time he'd done that, there was a church in Pisidian Antioch that had come to birth very suddenly through this short evangelistic campaign. Well, welcome to the world of St. Paul the Apostle. You will see this sort of story being repeated time and again through the next few chapters. He's on the move, he's coming to a new place, he goes to the Jewish community, there's a divided response, some believe and some don't, then he goes to the Gentile community, more people believe, a church is formed, opposition rises up, there's controversy in the city, and sometimes there's persecution and often Paul has to then move on. That's the kind of pattern we're gonna get all the way through the coming chapters. So be prepared to see that pattern emerging. So what reflections can we make as we come to the end? First of all, the spread of the gospel is about going to new places. And there is still a need in our world today for people to go to new places. It might be a part of your city which hasn't got a living church,
It might be a town or a village which has never had the gospel. It might mean you moving to another country which has been closed to the gospel. It might mean getting into a social group in the city that <clears throat> has never heard the gospel. But we are always called to look for new places to preach Christ. And Paul and Barnabas were willing to go to new places with absolutely no certainty about what the outcome would be, facing tremendous risks, tremendous risks, but also tremendous opportunity. And there's a great momentum in the world today for apostolic church planting that's similar to this style in the New Testament, taking the word of God in simple terms to people's homes, marketplaces and communities. And that process needs to go on and on and get even stronger than it is now in order that the whole world can be reached and the gospel proclaimed to every nation. And Paul and Barnabas are starting on this task 2,000 years ago, a task that we still have in the church today. The second reflection I have is in terms of sharing our faith, the best place to start is with people who you have most connection with, most natural links to. Who's that for you, I wonder? For Paul, it was his fellow Jews. He went to the synagogue. It was the natural place to start, but it'll be different for you. Who are the people you can most naturally share your faith with? That's where you can prioritize your energy. And in conclusion, I just want to say that the birth of this church here in Pisidian Antioch is dependent not only on the incredible courage of Paul and Barnabas, but the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced in the text in two beautiful ways towards the end. And I want to just conclude with just this positive reflection on the work, the creative work of the Holy Spirit. In verse 48, uh, when we're talking about the Gentiles listening to Paul, it says in the second half of that verse, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. Now this indicates, this appointment to eternal life indicates God's initiative, God's reaching out and revealing himself to some people in particular so that they can respond to the message given. So this is a divine initiative. And how does God do that? He does that through the work of his Holy Spirit. And we've experienced that work of the Holy Spirit as believers, if we're believers today. That's happened in us. And that happens in other people. So the Holy Spirit goes ahead to help us believe. But we also notice in verse 52, after Paul and Barnabas had left, that the Holy Spirit strengthens the church. The disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now that's a miraculous verse. Why should they be joyful when their leader's been forced to leave through persecution? They're joyful because they found a great salvation and they've got a great assurance. So we thank God in final reflection for the role of evangelists and leaders who brought the gospel to us. But even more, we thank God for his own work within us that brings us to salvation and keeps us experiencing the reality of that salvation.
Thanks for joining us for this episode and do join us again as we continue on the road with Paul and Barnabas as they travel from place to place in Asia Minor. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.